The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we speak with colleagues who are affiliated with Cornell's colleague networking groups, also known as CNGs. The CNGs are essentially Cornell's version of employee resource or affinity groups. We ask them about their experiences working at Cornell, engaging with the CNGs, and what their thoughts and ideas are around what belonging at work looks and feels like. My name is Erin Sembrechase. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we're excited to be talking with members of the Disability CNG and the Young Professional CNG. Welcome, Ashley and Ten. We're so excited to have you both here. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. I'm so excited. So just to get us started, can you please introduce yourself, what pronouns you use, how long you've been here at Cornell, what you do, and what CNG you're representing today? Ashley, do you want to start? Sure. So my name is Ashley Cherry. I use she, her pronouns. Um, at Cornell, I am the undergraduate program coordinator in the Department of Communication. So I advise undergraduate students and am responsible for the course coordination for the whole department. And I'm here today representing the Disability Colleague Network Group. All right, and Ten. Uh, I'm Ten Van Winkle. I use she and they pronouns. And currently I'm working as a multimedia support specialist at Mann Library, which is part of access services. So largely like I work on the desk and I do a little bit of instruction and equipment is kind of like the specialty area that I'm in right now. Uh, and I've been at Mann Library since June of 2022. And before that, I was at the Johnson since October. Um, so pretty new to Cornell still as a employee, but I came here as a student and uh, my whole family has worked here my whole life. A little bit of a legacy situation. And I'm here representing the uh, Young Professional CNG. Excellent. Well, thank you both. It's so great to have you here with us. One of the things we're talking with the CNGs about is this concept of what it means to really feel included and to have a sense of belonging. And I think the words diversity and inclusion are not new to us, right? Those are words we've been using for years now. But I think, personally speaking, that the concept of belonging is a little bit newer. That is something that we're paying more attention to. So I'm wondering if you could share with us what that word means to you. The very first thing I think about when you said the word belonging is uh, just feeling safe to be yourself. I think that plays into the whole bring your whole self to work. You know, you want to feel like you can be yourself in your department or at the university as a whole. And knowing that you can voice any opinions or concerns that you might have without being too judged about it. I think belonging for me is really just that feeling of being safe and understood. Yeah, I think that Ashley hits kind of the big ones. And one thing that I've recently tried to incorporate into my understanding of the concept is feeling like you matter. Like it's one thing to bring yourself completely to a space. And it's another thing to feel like you matter in the space. You make a difference there. Um, you enrich that space and that space enriches you, which I think, again, a lot of my family has worked here and, and I've seen people come in and out of the university. And I think that that's one of the struggles is finding that you matter in a place when it's hard to connect to the community. Um, so I think belonging is be able to strike that balance between treating it like a job and treating it like your community. 
and the word safety is, you know, both of you mentioned that, right? And so in terms of creating that safe environment, what does that look like for both of you? When you say that, you know, you want to feel safe, what kinds of things in your environment would make you feel safe or does make you feel safe? I think the biggest one, so I automatically think about my current supervisor right now. She has been my supervisor for a while. I started out at the university with her, and then she got a new job, and I followed her to Department of Communication, where I'm at now, because she just, the very first time I told her, I was like, look, I have ADHD. (laughs) Things are going to be different. I am going to get my work done, but getting there is just a little different. My brain does not work the same way as people in this role previously. And she just, nothing, no reaction, well, no bad reaction. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She was like, she was like, oh, okay, what can I do to support you better? So that automatically like, oh, I can come to her with things that have to do with this because I know that she She might not understand, but she will give me the space to explain, and I don't feel judged for coming to her and being like, Tammy, I just can't today. (laughs) Like, And she really leaned into that and made me feel wonderful. That's a great example, and I have to say it's particularly meaningful in this day and age when we know there's been a lot of turnover and people are leaving for other jobs. And I've been hearing that saying more this year than I ever have before, the saying that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. And what you're talking about is sort of bringing up a whole another saying that people also will follow managers, right? If they have a good supervisor and a good manager, then they're actually going to want to follow them. Mm-hmm. You have no problem leaving your job if it, cause it's more about you want that good relationship with the manager and you'll go wherever he or she is going to follow them. That's a great example. Exactly. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to take a position, the same position I'm in now in communication um, and a different department. And that department was wonderful. But I knew I had this relationship with her. We had already had the ADHD and anxiety discussion. So I knew that I could go to her. And it's kind of like starting over with a new counselor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You got to start from scratch, go over the whole thing again. So it's just, it's easier if you have a supervisor that you just vibe with and you can follow them. I had actually stayed at my last gig at year three. I knew that I hated the job and I knew that I hated upper management and it like diametrically opposed my soul. Um, But I stayed for another four years because my manager there created a powerful sense of safety for me and we would talk again and again about like why don't you just leave and we'll start an interior decorating firm like I'll work for you I'll work for you anywhere uh but yeah and that that's actually right before I came to Cornell so what about you Tim going along with that what does that look like for you feeling that sense of belonging Yeah, I think that, well, one of the things I know with that manager in particular that helped me feel safe and helped me feel like I belonged and and that I mattered, it was she was incredibly transparent with expectations, not just of the job, but of the culture of the workplace. She was great about sort of outlining what was expected of me. And, And the job that I was performing was a one in a very hierarchical culture. 
illegal. It was illegal. Um, and I was performing not paralegal work, but like a legal assistantship. And so sometimes the line were a little bit blurred. And she was really great about sort of delineating this is what's expected of you. This is not something that is part of your job description. And I think like culturally, that was a huge help for me. And then on a small level, it always makes me feel like I belong more when I'm allowed to have like a little bit of space that is for me to bring myself in I like I nest I decorate so like I want to bring myself to my cubicle as it is now I want to bring myself to my office I want to have my little lights and my posters and my knickknacks it is a little thing but it's such an important thing for me I feel like for somebody to pass by you and see oh there you are so that's something small that I always feel enriches my experience as an employee yeah, I love that. And you know what? There's been tons of studies. And so, Ten, I'm the complete opposite of you in that sense, that I actually don't decorate my space at all. That's just who I am, right? And so it's kind of great that we can both bring ourselves to work. And and yet what I've been told by people is apparently there was a very famous study out there, and I, I know nothing about it other than what has been shared with me. It's this concept that if you actually don't decorate your space, then you don't plan to stay. <laughs> and so I've had supervisors that say, I just need you to put like one picture in your office. <laughs> Please, for me. Yeah, just for me, just so I know you're staying. <laughs> so it's funny how like here both of us are, we're so opposites in that sense. But so I think it's kind of great that we can both bring ourselves to work that way. Um, so both of you just described kind of something that has gone really well, right? And that's made you feel included. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the other side, right? When things don't go as well, what does that feel like? And what makes you feel not included or you don't feel belonging? For me, it's it's very much a mold to the things that do allow me to feel belonging. So if I'm put in a place, uh, I, I can I can work it out if somebody says, figure it out. <laughs> um, I've, I've been in positions where I've landed in place and have been told, uh, just, just do your job. You have the job description and you should maybe go talk to a bunch of people that might be able to tell you what your job is. And I worked it out. But for me, if my immediate supervisors are not engaged with me, if they're not transparent, if they're not sort of setting an example for what I should be doing, it's hard for me to feel like I should be engaging with the work. And I feel like I have a funny dissonance between I would like to have hard lines around what's expected of me, but also I want my workplace to be engaged in my life. Like I want to share myself personally. I want you to know who I am and I want you to respect that to such a point that you do not impinge on my sense of self with this work. I will gladly put myself 100% to whatever I'm doing. But if you ask things unexpected of me, it's going to be a conversation. One of the things that I've really struggled with is when I say, what do you want from a project? And my project managers or teammates say, whatever you want. And then I do what I want. And they say, that's not what we want. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that makes me absolutely insane. And as a somewhat creative person, I find myself in those positions a lot. But it's something that immediately immediately turns me off and, and really puts me into a, a burnout place where it, it doesn't take long to start saying, I don't care. I'm going to check in and check out. Um, so like not having strong expectations and not having personal engagement is going to cut me off of a workplace very, very quickly. I empathize with that. <laughs> yeah, I really do. Now that you want that structure and those parameters and it's a tricky thing when you're not given that because on the one hand, oh, great, I could be creative. I could do whatever I want. But as you just illustrated <laughs> so beautifully, sometimes even then when we do that, it's like, oh, that wasn't the right answer. 
So you end up in this weird mind game of trying to figure out what the answer is that no one else really knows either. Yeah. But they act like they do. Well, and in a machine as big as Cornell, I feel like there's also a fallacy of like, we're family and we're personal and we don't want to boss you around and we don't want but the machine is too big for there not to be a high level of and this is my personal opinion the machine is too big for there not to be a high level of structure from top to bottom and from bottom to top so i think that in an attempt to be inclusive and friendly people let go of training and let go of team building and let go of some of the strictures of office work that make the office work like we're not a small community we're a giant machine and in order to take care of the machine you have to be taking care of each of the parts so it's a funny thing where i feel like in an attempt to become farcically inclusive and accepting um you're losing sort of maintenance on the inside great analogy how about you ashley So I am actually the opposite. Um, And it's probably, again, the ADHD. Do not give me structure. I don't like it. Uh Um, I am blessed right now. My job, I can be as creative as I want. There are obviously some kind of structural pieces. Like I have to advise these students. I have to tell them the requirements for the university, the requirements for Cal's the requirements for the department, but I am given a lot of creative freedom. If there's a little event I want to put on, yeah, go ahead, go do that. However you want to do it, it's great. And that's not how it was at my job before Cornell. So before I came here, I was in banking. Uh, The whole thing is structure. And I lasted three years in banking, which was, I didn't hate it, but I didn't feel like I belonged there. It was very cold and sales-oriented. Yeah, that's where I was before Cornell. And then coming here and, again, talk it to death, finding this one supervisor who made sure that this position I was in was kind of framed in a way that was going to work for me. She noticed, or I don't know, she might have just asked me, that I want to be creative with how I'm doing things. Uh, Just because the person before me did this task this way doesn't mean I'm going to do it. I want to come up with my own solutions. So both positions that I've been under her, she has really, really fostered that creativity and let me figure things out in a way that will work for me. Part of that is not having too much structure. So yeah, 10. I've got to say, I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. Like, I don't... uh, So I am a big believer in rules are meant to be broken, but you have to know the rules to break them. So like... Anytime you take a poetry class, like you can't subvert poetic form without knowing the structure of the form, right? And so I feel like good structure allows for deviance. So when you have, let's take the machine analogy, if you have the machine that you actually are put into and you're going into another spot where there was a gear, but your grooves are different. It's not that they need to change your grooves. It's that they need to adjust the machine so that you can keep things rolling. Again, I feel like that's another fallacy of like either you're too loosey-goosey or nobody gets to do anything. This is the hard requirement of what we need from our employees. And 
a ideal platonic structure would allow for both creativity and rigidity where it's necessary. And I think that the thing that behooves both of those things is knowing what the goal is and having a unified sense of purpose. You know, Ashley, I think what you bring up is so critical also in the concept of many disabilities, which is I would argue that it isn't that you don't want or you can't have structure. Mm -hmm. It's that you have your own idea of what structure looks like because of your ADHD. And and you can say that about so many other conditions and disabilities, too. And and that, and that speaks to what Ken's talking about. Another great analogy is the machine recognizing that it needs to shift to allow for those different ways of operating. Because you, I have no doubt, you still are getting work done. Mm -hmm. You're still meeting deadlines. You're still meeting timelines. You know, it isn't that you're saying, ah, whatever, it'll get done when it gets done. That's not what having ADHD means. But it does mean that you have a different approach to how to do it. And uh, as an employer, we have to appreciate that. It might be a machine, but not all the workers are these identical little robots doing the work. And so it's recognizing that for somebody to be able to get the work done, they have to do it in a way that's conducive to the learning style, the working style, the disability, whatever it may be. But that's what belonging is, right? It's where both of you can bring the styles that work for each of you individually and to Aaron's point, still get the work done on time, right? And and the way the work needs to be done, yet you could do it in your own style. And I think that's what belonging truly means is that both of you are able to do that, right? And so they can each work individually the way they want to or they need to to get their work done. I think that's kind of what's amazing about what, exactly what we're talking about, what inclusion means, what belonging means, that each of you and your individual styles you both have felt that safety to be able to bring that individual style to work, right? And I think that's what's great about the whole concept of belonging. So this is a good segue, I think, into talking about, you know, we've heard both of you talk about your own experiences, which has been very, not only eye-opening, but I think resonating and probably resonating with a lot of our listeners as well. Um, but, you know, taking that a step further to sort of talk about the CNGs that you both represent, young professionals, disabilities, colleague networking group. So I guess talk to us a little bit about what are some of the themes or, or things that you're hearing from your communities when it comes to this idea of belonging? Well, I think largely, I'll, I'll speak to the young professionals first. And, and again, this is strictly my reading of what I've seen and, and not even just talking with the CNG, but talking with peers across the university. A couple of the things that are sort of itching is a dissonance between what's put out and what's experienced in terms of inclusion and belonging and responsibility and consistency across the way. I think we have a really great tagline for our inclusion and belonging and for bringing in our students. But a lot of, especially our young professionals, and especially our young professionals of color, are not finding the acceptance and the belonging the sense of mattering, the sense of contributing and and people wanting their input. And everybody can see it. Like, everybody can see it and nobody knows what to do about it, uh, especially in as young professionals where they don't feel like they are equipped to make a difference in their workplace, which I think also speaks to a problem of belonging, mm -hmm. uh, where you don't know the ins and outs of the nonsense that goes on to get something changed in a higher education situation. 
so I, that that sense of dissonance between what the university as an organization says and what the different silos of the university do or do not do is one of the big things. And the other thing that I think weighs on young professionals right now is a sense of exhaustion. Like, I am so young. How can I feel like this already? And on the one hand, that's sort of a universal problem, but also it, it's symptomatic of higher education as a workplace, uh, especially when we're talking about people dealing with um, staff versus faculty versus students, everything kind of bumping up against itself. I love that question that you just posed, Hen. How am I so young yet I'm so exhausted? And if you think about that on top of your colleague who might have a chronic illness, who is fatigued in the first place all the time, how are they feeling right now? That was a good question, Ten, and a nice little segue. Um, I think DCNG, some things we do really well with belonging. I mean, if you just think about how diverse the umbrella of disability is, there's, like I've already talked about, ADHD, chronic illness, mobility impairment, but we also have members who might not have a disability themselves, but they're caregivers to an individual with a disability somebody who was not disabled as they were going through their career, but now they are starting to age a little bit and are finding themselves disabled or at least um, struggling in some areas. And that's a new thing. If you move through your entire life able-bodied, neurotypical, and then all of a sudden your joints are a little stiff, you can't climb the stairs, um, you're going to start to realize that this building doesn't have an elevator. So I think one thing that a lot of people have found with DCNG is that there are all of these little subsets that you can kind of find your place in. And I think another thing that DCNG does well is we are we're very flexible. So we have social activities with the group, little like hang out and chat. Um, but we also have projects that are making change on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, we have started a new, hopefully, series of kind of more educational meetings where we ask the membership, what's something that you want us to talk about? Send us a video, send us a news article, and then we will meet for half an hour, an hour, and chat about it. So, you know, if you don't want to be a disability social justice warrior, you can still come hang out with us and chat. So I think that lends itself to feeling a sense of belonging. Yeah. Completely agree with that. And you're right. That is one identity. Having been a member of the DCNG myself for many years, I know that there's such diversity, as you say, actually. So that idea of how do you then create a community that everyone can see themselves, even though they might have a different disability or a different health condition. They might have something obvious. They might have something not obvious. That is your great point about maybe you didn't start at Cornell with a disability, but you developed one at some point during your career. So trying to create a space where all those individuals can actually feel like they see themselves reflected is so key. And I'd like to thank for both of your groups, The CNGs in general, the fact that we have them, is at least a nod towards recognizing that, you know, individuals who identify this way 
might want to connect with other individuals who identify that way. And to find that sense of belonging, especially if your specific work unit isn't making you feel that as well as you'd like, at least they have you all to gravitate towards to try to, to make up for that in some way, if that makes sense. For me, when I started looking for other jobs at Cornell, after my first one, having the CNG made me feel better about going anywhere else. Uh, because I was able to say, no matter where I move, I have this and I can use it. I can tap it to say, like, what's your experience in in this area of Cornell? And I know that these people will be here to support me. And I know that my job includes this. So no matter where I'm going, at least I have this core pillar of of structure and responsibility, which is what I need to get through my day. <laughs> I have this to keep me steady as I'm moving into a new place. I love that. So I think it's important that employees know that even if you don't want to be very active in these groups, you can sign up for them and we are here for you. So, you know, if you all of a sudden need to look for or learn the process for requesting accommodations, there's somebody in the DCNG membership that can tell you their experience, how it went for them. If you need advice on how to talk to your manager about you having ADHD and anxiety and needing to work differently, there's somebody in the membership that can help you. So even just having these groups like kind of in your back pocket is huge. And I think all of you mentioned this sense of finding community within the group. So even just being part of that email listserv, you can get that sense of community without being an active participant. So I think that's amazing about all of the CNGs. Yeah. I love that you say maybe you don't want to be a social justice warrior because I feel like anytime you join one of these like lists or committees or, or whatever you're doing on Cornell, there's like a fear. Like, what do they want from me? Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't have I don't have the guts. I don't have the energy to take care of this. Um, and that's something that I feel like I've been actively trying to change in my in my language when I'm telling people about the CNGs. Uh, so lately, what I've been saying is it's basically shop talk and support. So like you can be on a listserv and you can take advantage of the resources. You can come and if you have something that you want to workshop with the group, you can do that. Or you can just be here and eat a cookie. And, and that's fine. And just meet people. Like it's so good to meet people who aren't in your workplace, but are in the community of Cornell. It's such an enriching experience. I think, too, that that's easy to, and I can say this because I worked at Cornell 20 years, so, you know, I'm allowed to say, yeah, this place can be really hard sometimes in terms of it being so big and so decentralized, but I think what you just hit on is one thing that makes it a positive, and that when you have a group like your CNG, you're going to meet people that you probably never would meet in your everyday work life, but, you know, you're going to meet people from all across campus, and it can really help you to realize, oh, this place is bigger than my little work unit, or, you know, my one job that I do, and, and like you said earlier, Ken, that could be a great source of networking then later. You know, when you do think you're ready to move on, but you don't necessarily want to leave Cornell, or you don't want to leave this environment, it's a chance to really realize, oh, there's a lot of other opportunities out there, and now I know other people that might be able to enlighten me about those opportunities because I'm in this CNG. So we, we all talked about this idea of finding community, right, for individuals that hold the identity of your CNG, so whether it's the disability CNG, young professional CNG, and at the same time, we know that many of us hold multiple identities. And so, for example, you can be a young professional and have a disability. In both of your CNGs, they're also BIPOC individuals or those identify as the LGBT. 
knowing that all of us hold multiple identities, how does your CNG support or work with individuals that also at the same time hold other saline identities? So full disclosure, <laughs> um, Ten and I were talking about this question on the drive over here. And honestly, this is the question that kind of threw me for a loop a little bit because so DCNG has a moderate sized membership right now. Our e-board is there's just a few of us. So in all honesty, we are not very diverse right now. Obviously, a goal of ours is to be legitimately diverse. Um, so one thing I've been kind of grappling with is how can we do this? I think the DCNG has a great start. We just started a new initiative kind of a meeting format where we are posing it to the membership. If you found a video that talks about this certain topic, send it to us and then we'll have a group discussion about it. If there's a certain topic that you want to facilitate a discussion on, let us know. And we haven't had anybody sign up for it. So we can talk about these things, but I will never be able to talk about the experience of a person of color with ADHD. I'm never going to do that. So if we want to have these conversations, we need people to have those conversations with. So this question got me a little sweaty. I think part of what you're saying, though, Ashley, is looking at your membership and kind of acknowledging, okay, there's no way this is inclusive of everybody that might identify as having a disability or chronic health condition. It also happens to be a group, speaking from experience, that tends to be very female-heavy. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of men in my time have been part of DCNG. So I think what you're doing is a step in the right direction of acknowledging, okay, we are not as diverse as we could be. What is it that we're missing, and, and how can we appeal to the audience more and sort of put ourselves out there as this is something we care about? So we welcome other people to, to help us care about it in some ways, is at least half the battle. Yeah, and I also think that, that you talking about the idea and the sense of safety earlier, I think could be a potential mm. key element here as a person of color. I speak for myself here is that at least for me, if I have a hidden disability, right, it takes a lot for me in a work environment to maybe talk about that disability because if I'm already a female, I'm already part of a marginalized identity group in terms of my race and ethnicity, do I then bring in a third identity, which is also a marginalized identity that I want to talk about and do I want to share that in the work environment, right? So I think this idea of, of safety could be a potential key in making people feel safe even when coming and being part of an identity that they identify as. Yeah, and I think as far as my hope and strategy for the young professionals goes, um, I think it also plays into that sense of belonging and safety and mattering. And I mean, there's there's automatically a little bit of extra buy-in from our BIPOC community, from young professionals, I think, because we have so many people who aren't finding belonging in their workplace. So we have people coming and saying, I'm having this problem. What can I do with it? And as a chair, I try to make it so that their voices matter. So like if you bring that to the table, that's what we're going to discuss. If we're doing a reading, if we're if having somebody in, like we try to highlight diverse voices so that people know this is what matters to us and this is what we want. And your voice is welcome here, too. So I feel like we work hard to diversify and, and color in our peripherals, but also just talk to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> like when people come in, 
We're not trying to isolate anybody like, oh, my goodness, finally, (laughs) someone's here. Like, it's just everybody gets in on the conversation. Everybody gets sort of an equal say. And if somebody is not getting, for me particularly, I notice if somebody's being quiet, we try to open up the opportunity for them to talk. Not in a forceful way, like you're not compelled to do anything, but just in case. Hey, checking in. How are you doing? Have we heard from you? Do you want to say more? And I find a lot of the times with the nature of the young professionals, again, the people who are coming to us are people who want to engage, but just don't know how. I find if I go to them directly and say, hi, what's up? They have something to tell me. So I think that that's a valuable part of of what we do is just is just going directly to people and saying, what do you need? What would you like? What, what Sometimes I also feel like, you know, I know and I've shared this in past podcasts where we say, like, when it comes to certain identity groups and especially the C&Gs, you know, what's amazing for me is that sometimes I don't have to say anything and I feel that belonging, right? Like I can just walk into a space. It doesn't matter what we're talking about or what we're not talking about. Sometimes we're just hanging out, you know, like you said, eating a cookie, whatever it is. But I can walk into that room and that space and it's completely okay for me not to say a word. And yet somehow everybody in that room understands what I might be going through. That for me is the best part about having this community or or for me, multiple communities. I think you all hit on that in various ways. Yeah. It's the idea is to, of the CNGs is creating a space where you can participate in whichever way you want That's to. It. You know, you can engage in whatever, however that looks to you. And, and like Ashley was saying earlier, there are definitely people that have been on that list for years that I've never seen in person, right? But they will respond to things over email because that's the level of engagement that they want or that it feels best to them. What toils is that? People that have shown up to meetings and they're not saying much, but you know they felt a need that day to be there and to be surrounded by other people. Maybe they don't want to talk about whatever the it is that brought them there, but they just wanted to be in the presence of other people who they identify with, even if just for an hour, you know, out of the week, I think is critical. Um, and that, that's the beauty of, I think, these spaces is that it can be. It's a matter of making sure people know, yes, you can engage in any one of these ways, whatever it feels for you. Ken, I have to ask before we go any further, because I know there's going to be listeners that are out there wondering, how are they defining young professional? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so I listen, you know I love structure. So we say any anybody under 40 and or if you are new to your career in Cornell and you just feel like you need to listen in, we're here. And again, just get on the listserv. Get on the listserv if you want to know. Even if you're not a young professional and you just kind of know want to know what's going on, we'll tell you on the listserv. I love the idea that you could be young in your career, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. you went through a career shift and this is the first year in your new field, but you've only been in this field for maybe a year or two years. And I like that idea too, that young professional can mean different things. But yeah, there's also like to your structure, I like that there's an age limit too. (laughs) Well, and and Ashley, you sort of answered it earlier, same question, but disability is so diverse. If we were to actually try to use all the words that people use, it would be the longest name ever, right? Disability, chronic health, neurodiverse, you know, CNG. Like, we're not going to say all that, but those are all the various identities that we consider when we consider disability. So this big, huge disability umbrella is both a blessing and creates some challenges. Going back to the question we've asked a couple times today, how do you find community in such a big place? So I think that's one thing that has proven tough with the Disability Network Group. We put out a survey to the membership. 
you know, what topics do you want? And of course, there were topics from all over the board that we could never, not never, um, we could try to (laughs) cover all of them, but it's not going to do justice to all of these topics. So trying to find that balance, I think, has been one of our biggest struggles. And I think it's good that we're sort of trying to spell some of this out for both your groups because I think it helps to also recognize that even though we have Disability Colleague Networking Group, Young Professionals, we can't possibly put everybody in the same box. And I think it's important for our colleagues who don't have these identities to recognize that too. Our managers who don't have these identities because it could be very easy to also assume that all young professionals are having the same experience or all employees with disability need the same thing. And that's not true. Right? So the more that we're sort of acknowledging the diversity that exists in the experiences within the CNGs, the more it's putting on the rest of us, I think, to kind of recognize, oh, I've been generalizing and I really need to stop and think, not about what all my employees with disabilities need, it's about what does my supervisee actually need? You know, what does my colleague can need? And kind of remember that even though we have these groups, there's still going to be those individual experiences that are important. Erin, you are a perfect person to set up the next question. What a great segue into talking about what allyship and advocacy means, right? So how can staff and faculty serve as better allies or better advocates for the CNGs that individually represent? So I will chime in here. Uh, One thing that I put down was to just don't make assumptions. Like if you are on the hiring committee, for a position and a candidate tells you that they have ADHD, do you automatically assume that they might be less productive than a neurotypical candidate just because one person you've known that had ADHD didn't turn in an assignment on time in high school? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. let's try not to make assumptions because everyone's disability is completely different. My journey with ADHD is completely, completely different from somebody else, even if they're also white woman, 26 years old, it's still going to be completely different. Yeah, and I, in my experience, both as somebody coming up and somebody trying to to bring in people who are new to a workplace, I think that the biggest help that I've had and that I've given is to literally just talk to people Um, and to make a point to talk to people who are not in your immediate peer group, people who are not in your immediate office. And I think if, if we're thinking about an age gap or an experience gap, the absolute craving in young professionals at Cornell right now, and I think in general for mentorship is palpable. It is something that people are begging for constantly. I think that there's a concept of mentorship as something being, again, very structured, very official, and that requires a lot of you and puts a lot of responsibility. It's just a relationship. Like, it's, it doesn't have to be, well, we meet every week for an hour and, and we run down our checklist of items that we created the week prior and make sure we meet all of these. Like, literally, you just need somebody who knows the ropes in one place to tell you, like, you're doing okay. Or, oh, I, I don't know if you should have said this, such and such a thing. People need to have conversations. 
And again, that plays back into the belonging. You know, you'll feel more connected if you're having these conversations with people outside of your immediate sphere. And I think that one of the big problems that creates siloing and that creates a generational gap is once you get to a point of comfort, you stop reaching out because it, there's a sense of like, I've done my work. I paid my dues and I'm kind of done. But then you leave the people who are paying their dues now in the lurch. And, and those people so desperately need contact. They need to know what's going on. And something we talk a little bit about as, as young professionals is how do we bridge that gap? And I think it is going back and making sure that you are engaging with the people coming up. I guarantee that if you talk to them, it will be less scary. And I think that's the number one easiest thing that anybody can do to be a good advocate for a young professional who is struggling. If you see somebody sitting by themselves, go and talk to them. Have a cup of coffee. Just say hi on your way to the office. Like, just open up the conversation. Yeah, I think it ties very well into Ashley's point earlier that don't make assumptions, right? That if they are by themselves, that they want to be left alone. Don't assume that, right? And if you go and talk to them, you can sense pretty quickly if they want to be left alone, right? And then you can walk away and if that's what you sense. So I think um, to your point, don't make assumptions. And I kind of like this idea that it almost sounds to me like what both of you are saying is treat each person individually, right? Mm -hmm. And so to Ashley's point earlier, if you've known somebody way back when that had this kind of disability, does not mean that this other person that you're meeting that has the same disability is going to act or behave the same exact way or will need the same things as what that individual needed. And it's kind of really goes back to what we all talked about at the beginning of this concept of what the word belonging means, right? Each of you described this idea of being able to bring your whole authentic self to work. So all of this is connected, right? Treat me as an individual, right? Look at what my needs are and how I show up to work versus how somebody else who is a minority female from India might show up to work the same way. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things when thinking about your colleagues with disabilities is just think about us. <laughs> like, just take a second and think about us. You know, if you're planning a big event or an event of any size, is your event accessible to my colleagues that might have a mobility impairment? And a little hint here, on the DCNG webpage, we do have an accessibility event checklist that you can use that gives you kind of general guidelines for that. Yeah, just think about it. Could you use captions in your Zoom presentation that you're giving? Could you communicate with someone in a way that's better for them? You know, emails versus verbally, one long email instead of three short emails. You might have to ask, again, talk to someone. You might have to talk to someone. Ask them, how would you like me to communicate with you? You know, I see it a lot with events. Just think about us. Offer a shuttle if your parking is really far away. Pay attention to if the building you're in has an elevator or a ramp outside, if it's just stairs. I, I know I can go on about this forever. And I know it's tough to think about things that don't impact you, but just try to think about us. I keep thinking when we had Cedric Alexander here and uh, he was talking about basically our roles and, and talking about, he was talking about specifically our policing thing, but he said something that I found very valuable and that I keep in my mind. He's like, if you are going to do something, you have to do it Ivy League. And it is preposterous. I'm sorry, this is a PSA and a little bit of a soapbox. It's preposterous when I am talking about planning something and somebody says, do we need to have a remote option for this? Yes. Yes. Do we need to have captions? Yes. Like there's no reason to do the absolute minimum thinking about including people, whether it's 
people of color, whether it's people with disabilities, whether it's queer folks, it usually does not take that much effort to include somebody. And I guess I would entreat anybody listening to this to perform your events at an Ivy League level by doing the bare minimum and getting a shuttle. It also goes back to assumptions, too, because I hear a lot. Um, my previous role, I did some event planning assistance with my department, and I have heard a lot from various departments. When I ask, have you thought about a shuttle or have you thought about this and this? And they're like, well, anyone coming, I don't think they'll need that. Like, I can't think of someone in our department that would need it. And it goes back to assumptions. Don't assume just because, you know, you saw Professor Joe walking to his office just fine doesn't mean he can walk all the way across campus. <laughs> yeah. So those are really my big two. Think about us, but don't make assumptions. Yeah. And I also think that having the think about us being part of that is also like, don't wait for them to have to tell you, like, do this on your own, right? I think then that's kind of maybe what you were referring to. It doesn't take a lot of effort. So do your own educating and don't wait until somebody asks you to do it. So even things like providing interview questions oh, before yes. the interview starts, you know, and not the day before, maybe a week in advance or at least a few days in advance to say, here's what I'm going to be asking you. Because my goal during an interview is not to stump you. If my goal is to really get to know you and the background that you bring to the table, then why not just give you the question and say, here's what I'm going to be asking you, because this is what I want to know about you. I feel like so much of what you all have been talking about the last few minutes is bringing me back to something you said at the very beginning, Ten, which is that there could be this, quote, fallacy that Cornell is one big family, right? And that we, we do hear that a lot. We do hear, I'm kind of particular, I don't say that, because I feel like that can really make people who don't feel it to feel like there's something wrong with them. What am I missing and I'm not part of this family? But everything y'all are talking about, about this idea of being proactive and sensitive and empathetic, you're not using those words, but that's what it is, right? It's having your finger on the pulse of humanity. That is what a family should do, you know? And so the question is, do we want to be that family or do we want to be a dysfunctional family? You know, <laughs> which family do we want to be? And hopefully it'll be the former. Well, I want to thank both Ashley and Ten for joining Aaron and I today. We had an absolutely fabulous conversation. I probably speak for all of us when I say that we can continue this conversation for another like three hours <laughs> and we still would not be done. Of course. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, Toil, I thought that was a really, really interesting and compelling conversation that we just had with Ashley and Ten. What did you think? I agree. And I think that that conversation could have just kept going and oh, yeah. going and going. Yeah. Right? And I know we had to end it at some point, but yeah. I think we could have talked for another hour um, about the things that we, we talked about. Um, I will share that one thing that Ashley um, talked about that really stood out to me is this idea that people leave supervisors, right? And and we've, we've heard that over and over. Yeah. There's research that says people don't leave organizations, they leave their supervisors. Yeah. But the point that Ashley made and, and, and it related to her own life was this idea that not only will people leave great supervisors, but they will actually also follow yes. amazing supervisors, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so because she followed her supervisor. Yep. And I thought, you know, that's not a way that I've ever looked at this before. And I loved hearing that. 
I agree. And I and I think, you know, one thing that Ashley and Ten have in common is that they are both early career professionals. And so in, in an yeah. age where it does seem as though more early career professionals are leaving jobs and moving around quicker, more often than maybe you and I did mm-hmm. in our time, I, I think that that is also something to think about. That, well, maybe part of what might contribute to the desire to, to move around is if they do find a really solid supervisor, mentor, you know, they want to go work with their mentor. They want to, you know, they, they keep track of people that have made a yeah. difference for them and they keep track of their careers. And when they were talking about that, I realized I do know people who have done that because they've stayed in touch and kind of kept those connections alive. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's the way things are presented. I had a supervisor very early in my career easily stated to me that my job is to prepare you to take over for me. You know, as somebody who's just starting my career, I was like, wow, like, that is so profound because the message was, hey, I'm here to prepare you so you can eventually take over for me. That's the kind of supervisor I want. Um, There was a couple other things that came out during our conversation that just, like, again, as I said, this was an amazing conversation that we could have just kept going. There were three words that were said, and it's this idea that think of us, right, and don't make assumptions. We had a a prolonged conversation around that and ultimately leading to this idea of people adapting to the environment versus the environment adapting to the people. And how many times have you and I have had this conversation, especially in the disability space, um, about, hey, why mm-hmm. don't we just at least go ahead and already create the environment so that people don't have to actually reveal their disability to ask for any type of accommodations because we've already taken care of that for them. Yeah, and I think taking that a step further, recognizing that the people in the environment have changed a lot over the years. So all the more reason, you know, again, a lot more younger professionals a lot more professionals with disabilities. And so recognizing that the work environment, too, has to adapt to that and has to to be truly inclusive. You know, it really it reminds me of something that a student of mine said that was, I think, incredibly profound. He said, inclusion is not about being accepted. It's about being expected. Both what Ashley and Ten talked about really hit on that. It's not about that you just accept us and our identities and, and our various needs for how we work and how we work most productively and best, but you're expecting that. You're expecting it and you are embracing that and you've adapted the environment to allow for that. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Erin Stumbushes. We also want to thank our wonderful co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, for making us sound so wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert.